0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: McCard carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just next a big poppy. Be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
2: This is Wharton Moneyballs post-game podcast.
0: This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We are live on Business Radio, SiriusXM Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show.
1: Guys, what do you think? I'm going to turn to you, Cade, and ask you what has caught your eye. This is not a position you get to be in. No, it's not. So. It's not.
0: The the anticipatory eye-catching is opening day. The Phillies open tomorrow and um if we have any weather like this we're we're lucky for a march in philadelphia it may be a nice opening day but that's a big deal obviously it is yeah. especially with Bryce Harper here that's like yeah. a thing but that's 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 in the future in the past what's caught my eye i happened to i happened to catch the last of the duke ucf game on sunday and it was a good It was a good last few minutes to catch. As good
1: as uh, five minutes of basketball can be, particularly
0: in college. Well, unless you you want to see Duke go down. And, you know, most of the world... You no, did. didn't want to go, <laughs> you didn't yeah, go, go, go to Duke? So you they're the team you root
1: against. against. They're they're that are, way. Are they the Red Sox of uh, basketball. <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: I'm, <dumb. laughs> I'm not sure that's quite the
3: right analogy. It's, um,
0: it's definitely the LA
3: Lakers of yeah. college basketball, uh, yeah. or Dallas Cowboys. Go, I'll go Cowboys, Yankees. Yeah. It's definitely Cowboys, Cowboys,
0: Yankees vibe to those yeah. guys. Probably Cowboys are about as good as anything because they do have that national appeal, and they don't have. I mean, they have a lot of championships, but they don't have. The Yankees' run of championships. Anyway, they were going to lose. I mean, they by all rights would have lost that game. They had they needed like four things to go right in the last twenty five seconds, and they all went right. Yeah. There was a missed
1: missed you know alley, not even alley an well, easy it was lob. A sketchy,
0: and, sketchy foul and, call, and, put him on the line, and then a three point shot. That yeah, they had to make. Just, there's just a lot of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and it was you know. The game, the the has been so so chalky so far. It would have been nice so, to see something yeah. interesting. So when happen.
1: you say the word chalky, you mean mm. precisely that it just follows the the basic predisposed line.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. almost just down the, the line.
0: That I think. But where the, does that expression come from? Chalk. Uh, it's on the board according to plan or something. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. Uh,
3: I've heard it used forever for for exactly that. Like basically to the extent that you can kind of like rank the teams. The higher ranked teams, the better teams have. Won. And in this case, Almost it was, I
0: think, all the, the, the first, games. it was a record where the, the favorite won all all 16 games in the round of 32. It had never happened yeah. before. it's It's been 15 out of 16 before, but this was all of them. And it got me wondering, this, this must be... This amusing. is odd. This is definitely something unusual. Well, th- my question is whether it's less unusual than it used to be. That it kind of feels, you know, it's kind of the, the, you think of the halcyon days of the past where you had these crazy first weekends and the whole world was, you know, captured by yeah. the upsets and march and,
1: and, madness exactly and it feels a little
0: less mad now look the virginia a 16 had never lost to a one until last year and right. that's about as mad as it can get but setting aside that it's an empirical question have there been more have there been fewer upsets in recent years yeah. and the, the the mechanism the reason it seems like a plausible suggestion is that it's back to analytics guys it's like you know basically the world's gotten smarter and they probably seed better than they used to because they've got better data to work with. And if they seed better, be like, if you go back and reseed the old tournaments when you get these huge upsets, not not right. huge upsets, you get these just a string of upsets in the early weekends. If you went back and reseeded them with today's analytics, would those not look like upsets, I guess is the question. Yeah. Well, that
1: is the question. And also, but even in the first round, there's eights that play nines. Or seven plays, and these are supposed to be fairly close. Yeah. Seven and seven playing tens, and none of them went the other direction. So one would argue that maybe there's a differentiation or, or a, a separation in talent. Perhaps the better teams are getting better relative to the weaker teams, and so you'd see this blow through. Or maybe also the seedings have gotten better. I mean, so there's always a um, an opportunity. in in the at nine o'clock, we're going to have an opportunity to to interview Ken Pomeroy, which is he's like the you know the Doyon, if you will, the grand. Do- tell us what Doyon no, means. No, that's, that's a word I've Yeah, that is that is sort of the master um, of the um, of college basketball analytics. I mean, he's been doing this a long time before there was really even an analytics idea. He was out there doing college basketball analytics before there was data that it is now you know overwhelming. One of the things that that uh, some of our students here have done is use the. Play by play for college basketball that didn't exist. I don't know how long ago right. it was before we can get our hands on that. Right. And he does that sort of that Massey Peabody thing, but on the on the NCAA basketball tournament level. And we'll have a right. chance to talk to him. But there's always a difference in his previous years between the Ken Palm rankings and the rankings that were used by the tournament by the NCAA. That seems to have have maybe disappeared a little bit. Things are lining up more the way they should in the actual. Tournament seedings are what you call the chalk, as opposed to what the cognoscenti knew about the the, the rankings.
0: So they have explicitly incorporated new analytics this year, yeah. and people have complained about their old analytics. Is it RPI that's had such weight for years? And am I, am I using is that? that I think that's, that's also right, a school yeah. in upstate New York, but I think that's the name of the the analytics that the kind of traditional first generation analytics they've used for decades to to seed teams. I think it's finally on the outs. Yeah. So uh, if you have to So I mean to-
3: but but again we I mean I, I think Ken would be able to speak to this but we don't want to overreact to what's kind of happened in this That's particular right. term. I That's mean right. it, it could be that we've gotten they've gotten better about seeding and so the you know the, the it's going to – things are just going to be more chalky in the few going forward in the future but it could just be you know I mean it's, Luck, uh, to, yeah. To a certain <laughs> extent, we should. We, should we shouldn't get so excited about kind of what what is actually somewhat of a likely outcome, which is that you know the better teams are winning, which I think is, is a
1: reasonable thing. But if you look at the at the betting this year, um, for the first time, someone. Emerged with a perfect bracket up until this point, forty-eight yeah. out of forty-eight. Now, of course, there are probably hundred million brackets submitted in the public places. You know, the the Yahoos and the but it must be more likely CBS.
0: with a chalky set of and, outcomes. And, and I
1: think that, that that of course is is indicates that maybe the uh, the the outcomes are definitely better. Their forecasts are better in the future, and that can that order adds thousands and thousands of orders of magnitude to the probabilities when things are better. Yeah. So,
0: so by the way, another thing that caught my eye is that. Apparently, I hear enough talk that there are about to be some playoffs starting. So yeah. the regular seasons in both NBA and ah. NHL, NHL, winding are, down, are winding down. And but here in Philadelphia again, we have the Leafs visiting the Flyers tomorrow. No, tonight. Tonight, and um, um, you know, the Leafs and relevant
3: at least for the Leafs, <laughs>
0: or well, the this, Leafs are at least relevant it, for the playoffs. It raises the question yeah. to me about about where things are. I mean, the Flyers have this hot goaltender, right? This the, mm-hmm. this young guy that, you know, you can ride a, go- a good goalie in, in the NHL, so, but maybe they're not quite yeah, strong I mean, I just
3: to. think they've they've dug themselves enough of a hole now that I, I think it's going to be very hard for them to slip into playoff contention. Okay. Um, but, but a what huge number of
1: teams make the playoffs in hockey. What is the fraction? Is it well, over 50? I it's think the same it's 50%, as basketball, so 50%. It's
3: yeah, basically. And how, um,
0: how forecastable relative- Well, basketball must be more than that. They have 30 teams, so there's like 16 out of 30? Yeah, yeah so 16, I think, now, and, and okay.
3: whereas I think in NHL is sixteen out of thirty-two, I think okay.
1: so. I've, so, so just g- give me a sense of the forecastability. ability. Yeah. we know in the we have a basketball uh, playoff structure that's that's around the corner. We have a good sense that the weaker teams are going to get eliminated. We know almost with almost certainty, certain set of teams
3: are going to make it forward.
1: How about in hockey? How does it? Compare? No, it's, it's
3: much less predictable. The the playoffs are much less predictable. I mean, I think individual. I think there's a couple dynamics in there. I think individual games, just because there's so much more low scoring, are less... Uh, predictable ahead of time, so I think kind of like soccer. There's 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 that inherent stochasticity built into the games because because of low scoring, of, because of low scoring, and I think also the, the the talent sort of dispersion in the league is 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 more uniform in hockey than it is in basketball. You don't get these kind of super teams as much. I mean, this year actually, you know, they, we've got the Tampa Bay Lightning who are kind of playing like a super team. They 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 are have been kind of had a, a more kind of Almost like a historically dominant uh, regular season, um, but it's it, it's often the, it's it's kind of almost a joke in the NHL that the the winner that they have this thing called the President's Trophy, which is just given out to the team that has the best regular season record, and it's rare that the winner winner of the President's Trophy is also the winner of the Stanley Cup.
0: So let's talk about the Lightning for a second, just to to put a finer point on it. They are. 59 and 14 with yeah. 122 points the caps have had a really good regular season the last couple of years what was even almost record-breaking yeah but they? I mean so- I,
3: again to have you know only like to have less than 20 losses in a in a regular season is really unusual exactly
0: for even this year the and' the, their point in-
3: differential is like I mm-hmm. I mean we'll just look at our oh, yeah it's plus a hundred. Which but is like what, I think that's twice an, that's an it's enormous. over twice what the next <laughs> highest team is.
1: So what what okay. causes a team like that to be so much better than, than their next best?
3: Well, I mean, at, at least you know, in
1: the regular season,
3: you know, I, I mean, again, incredible, very, very. I mean, th- they are uh, a dominant team in basically all facets. They're, they're incredible at, at everything they do. They're, they, they've been rolling over teams, and, and you just don't usually see that in hockey. So it is kind of an unusual thing. So are
1: they a money ball team? Is there any aspect of that in their construction? I, 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 kind of I thought
0: they were, but I, I think they were a, like a sneaky story, kind of under the radar. Yeah, almost. I mean, it's,
3: it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, I mean, with, ho- I feel like hockey, and, and admittedly, I don't pay as close of attention as I should to this aspect of it. I, I I don't know if I find it harder to kind of separate out teams as the like really one, analytics. One of the reasons is because ones. they're
0: they are um, more secretive about yeah, it. What happened right. a few years ago, and, and this is like a, a moment in hockey analytics where there were a number of blogger types the analytics well, what of hockey happened was,
3: with the lease was what you're talking about no this was no. just
0: in the in the in the field in general hockey analytics there was a dialogue there were websites there was a lot of exchange yeah. it was kind of emerging and then the teams all bought these people up Yep. And and the and the dialogue the public dialogue just went quiet. Well, that's uh, it's that's a it's common
1: problem that the, the
0: but it was but the hockey the hockey the, is the hoc, extreme. They, well, isn't it's it? so extreme because the analytics community in hockey is so small yeah, right. that they were, they, were, they, were, they were There was this flowering, but flowering is like six voices, and then all of them got hired away. Yeah. Yeah. They're all gone. Yeah. and they're all quiet. But no, you know, and
3: it's not not, any, not even that they're not producing more. Results in the public sphere. It's that their previous public sphere results were kind of like essentially removed. Like like w- websites that used to be out there for tracking gone. this stuff are gone.
1: Well, it's interesting because some of the people that we know who are, who do say football or baseball who yeah. have sort of side interests in hockey, they're the only ones I see anymore. Yeah, I mean like Namita who is now with the Eagles,
0: she's the only one. She used to do hockey, but uh, she has, know, she's
1: the only one who still talks about hockey in my uh, sphere. Because, if you want
0: if you want a good hockey follow, you need to follow a, a football analyst, a football yeah. analyst, right, right? Namita Nandikumar has a fantastic. Twitter following in general, but she's got good hockey commentary. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Okay, but what we do know, I mean, the Leafs, one of the reasons I'm I'm pointing out that they're coming to Philadelphia yeah. is that they have been a little more high profile about mm-hmm. this. But let me tell you a quick story about the Leafs that I've, that I've learned in the last few months. So, Kyle Dubas is the general manager there. He came up from assistant GM. People have known for a while that he was one of the more advanced thinkers in the league, and people are excited about him. And he's made investments, you know, in, in the kinds of things that we would want him to invest: of in, sports science and analytics, that kind of thing. A few last summer, he wanted to expand the scouting staff, and hire some new scouts, and so he he asked around about you know who's up and coming. Who, he asked people he knew yeah. from around the the sport, who do you know that's not yet in. You know, working with the team, but you think might be worth that. And then he did a blind audition. He sent out tape of a handful of players to these people, six, seven, eight prospects, and said, Get, tell me what you think of these people. And, and by blind, I mean he then reviewed the results. And without he, and, knowing who they were. Who, without yeah. knowing who they were. Wow. And he ended up hiring this scout named Noel Needham out of South Dakota, a, a, a woman. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many female scouts there are in hockey, but it's possible there are possible that there's none. It's possible mm-hmm. she was the first one working in the NHL. And it's interesting that it happened via a blind audition. Yeah. And it's interesting that it happened from Kyle Dubas, who people have pointed to, pointed to for some time now as an innovator. And he comes in here and does this cool process, which we all ought to hire more that way. Right. And lands this woman in South Dakota. Turns out she was a prep. She was a very serious competitive, seriously competitive prep hockey player. Played in college. Started an academy in South Dakota, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota now, and coaches. And so she's, she's just, you know, she's, she lives it, has been living it for a long time. And she's got, and she's, she told me when she was telling me this story, she told me that she didn't have like a established scouting rubric, you know, like a matrix or something. So whenever Duba sends her this tape, he's, she, he's like, what do you, tell me what you think? She's like, I just, scouting. you tell what you think. Yeah, no. well, like I'm out, evaluate players all the time, but I just use my own rubric. And so it this may is another very
1: different in, from the but standard but this is a good thing right? Yes. Yeah. So
0: yeah. This is another way that dubus derives value from the process is like just tell me what you do and maybe it'll be And there's
3: there and and you know if if a team is doing something like as, as a team if you can uh, do a process that's kind of Unconventional. I mean, you potentially could identify, totally. you know, players or whatever that. Uh, I mean, there's there's value to kind of doing something unconventional like that, and of course, only, still getting it right. I guess. I right. mean, you, you have right. to do it uncon- something unconventional and still have some kind of well, to, measure of accuracy. But. but
0: but to be but to be fair, you could be wrong more often, but as long as you're doing it differently than someone else, you add value to the yep. portfolio. Yeah, I mean, that's this, right. This, you know, it's this this idea we have in in in, in statistics now of blending models. Right, and it's okay to use a lesser model if it has a different kind of era mm-hmm. and the portfolio so, ends up stronger. It's interesting
1: because uh, a lot of our students are now a- are auditioning for jobs with either companies or teams or they're, they're data analysts. And the process by, by by which they go through to get hired always ends in essentially an a, a analyst task, like a data set that they have, to an, they have to evaluate. It's like a test. And it's amazing what they, it's a screen. Essentially, here's yeah. a job and we want to see how you do it.
0: So, Adi, this is, you know, best practice in hiring. Hiring is so hard and people rely, so kind of over-rely on interviews. And interviews are, the re, the research shows that interviews are just highly not predictive. Yep. But people feel they're very yeah, predictive, and, and, which well, is a yes. bad
1: combination. How, what do you, Well, I, I'll circle back later on recommendations, but finish your story. Well, the,
0: the number one recommendation is exactly what you just said, which is a work sample. I mean, what you want is you want to observe them doing what Whatever it is you're hiring them to do mm-hmm. yeah. and usually it's not sitting across the desk from you talking to you one-on-one and right. so find a way to observe to them doing and so with, with analysts it's kind of never easier because we can just take some project we've been working on you know, and say, we've been thinking about this, we've been crunching these numbers, and so, hey, you go crunch these numbers and tell us what you think.
1: Let me add into that, follow up with that. I spent last week, Monday and Tuesday, in in uh, Florida, and I did a couple interviews, and hopefully we'll get them together and broadcast. So I, I met with Sam Andre cohen who's now so, the- So hold
0: on, you weren't just in Florida, you are at spring training. I was
1: at spring training. So I met with Sam Andre cohen who was a Penn grad and a former student of mine and is now um, assistant GM. At the nationals, Sam is assistant GM. GM. Wow! And I also went. Congrats to to him. Congrats to him. And we we had a lovely interview out in the outfield during the game. Hopefully, we get that. We'll get that together and broadcast. Well, you were
3: in the out. Oh no! (laughs) Not in the outfield. (laughs) In the outfield. I mean, spring training. Oh wait! I
0: got
3: a... Spring training. Excuse me. It is casual. He's 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 assistant GM and also replacing Bryce Harper in right field. I do want to go.
0: (laughs) If I'll go to spring training, I would go anyway. But you know, can we shag some balls? Can I get out there and shag? Yeah, so uh,
1: you know, uh, Maddie, Maddie, Dats, our producer was able to get me a media credential, which allows you access to the the entire facility, so you can actually get on the field pregame. We, you
0: don't know this, audio but we we did an over under, a special over under on how many more years until you get your media credential revoked. Yeah,
3: <laughs> you can do that. Yeah. Actually, it's it's actually I'm quite sure,
0: possible. I'm sure it is. And the over under, what is the over under? Three and a half years, yes, I think. I think, we was we had, I, think I was yeah, right. You know, I took the under bad, by the
1: way. You, you <laughs> did. That's a great one. But uh, so Sam, just bringing back. Sam, And when he first came and spoke here at Penn to my Moneyball Academy, the kids always wanted to know, well, how do I get involved in sports? And his answer was generate essentially work product before you have a job. Yeah, right. And
0: there are lots of folks who have been hired exactly that way. And we just talked about the hockey thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. all those guys that got hired by teams, that's because they were sitting in their basement writing interesting analyses and blogs. And, and and I
3: mean, again, it's kind of a fortunate aspect of what we do that you can do something like that, that you can kind of, like, as you're kind of, an undergrad, or you know, if you're already out of uh, out of school, you can generate a portfolio of kind of here's our here's, like, the, like the, here's the re- research reports I produce and stuff like that. I mean, as opposed to like I don't know if you're like a chef or something like that, you can't <laughs> you can't do that. You can't kind of work on that portfolio well, as much. Well, to be, it, to be fair, with,
0: with chef, you probably can. These little, do a little pop up restaurant, do a trailer. Yeah, no, okay, kind of I guess.
3: Thing. Yeah, you're right. There are, there are kind of probably chef equivalents of what we do, but, but also, I think it's just particularly easy for us to to kind of build. Up our portfolio, sort of in yeah, our l-
0: let me give one more independently con- concrete example. Kevin Mears went to Harvard. Harvard has this great undergraduate sports collective, they're probably they the do. rival of yeah. what's going on around here. Well, but, they've
1: been doing it longer.
0: So, the Cowboys were reading his stuff essentially, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was. They were impressed with this guy, they brought him in for an internship, and then they I forget whether they hired him full time there or when they that staff moved up to Cleveland. So, Kevin Mears was working as an analyst for the Cowboys and then the Browns full time. Because of what he was writing as an undergrad and putting it on the, on the web. That's right. And by the way, he's just been accepted to Harvard Business School and he's leaving the Browns. He's leaving the Browns to, to, go to that. So that's, that's a concrete example of a guy who got the job from doing the work, doing yeah. the work ahead of time.
1: And this is, this is common. So I also had a chance to talk to Michael Fishman. Who is the uh, assistant GM at the Yankees? And look actually, at that, Adi.
0: I know Yankees front office people, isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. That's remarkable.
1: I, I will say, um, I don't know. You, I, you we, know your
3: Fishmans from your Cashmans. You know
1: your Fishmans <laughs> from the Cashmans. <laughs> Barely, but but uh, but Fishman, in his biography, he was a Yale grad, and while he was an undergraduate, he had a he worked for a professor of statistics, John Hardigan, and he did baseball research. He sent it to all the teams. And the Yankees, uh, you know, bit. This was in the about maybe almost twenty years ago, and he was their first
0: hire. Okay, so tell in, me, are, in, we, in are we doing are we doing them a disservice by telling these stories of the dawn of analytics when there were like you could go knock on a GM's door and they oh an analyst let me right, let me yes, hire exactly. this unusual animal is it does it still work that way
3: I mean it probably I mean as as it becomes more again conventional to have these analysts it probably it's it's going to be it becomes a little bit. Yeah, I mean, may- maybe this kind of informal knocking on somebody's doors is-, is less common, but I still think it is kind of the way things I think it's are done. That done. Way. I mean, I-, I think, you know, these-, these kind of networks or whatever of-, of these professional networks are still kind of, you know local in the sense that like you you know it is it is kind of you you knock on a lot of doors or send a lot of emails or whatever and 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 kind of spread the word slowly spread the word about yourself that way i I think that's the case in even even in the most established of sports which is presumably baseball for for analytics and certainly you know coming back to what we were talking about with something like hockey where it's you know I think it's a little bit I think that informal process is just much more co- commonplace. Um, as as teams are a little bit like not as developed in well line, there's just a couple of things that are
1: different from the dawn as opposed to today so one for example they do post internships and mm-hmm. they have job openings and you see them online and you can apply through the front right. door that didn't used to exist they also have much larger staffs so just as a point two mm-hmm. points mm-hmm. so i figured the Yankees had to have the biggest biggest staff so i kind of tried to pull you know you know push, my of course push of course. The Yankees would but it have turns the out they staff. don't yeah. i mean no no he, he claimed what? they don't he claimed they don't he said they, that in terms of analytics yeah. staff. There are at least around 20, which seems oh enormous. Oh, my God. Which is it's incredible. But that also, that also in, includes, I think, people who do th- sort of the software side of the data management. So one of the things that These it, are pretty integrated anyway. And they are integrated. Mm-hmm. So a, a Yankee, at least, you, uh, you, they get a, an iPad, which has everything that they would need to know uh, about the upcoming the games, pl- about their players own... Players get these iPads. Players. Mm-hmm. We have video. It has data. And they, they get this information. And this is part of the, the analytics staff to produce like this gold-plated stuff. gold-plated yeah.
0: with little... Plat- uh, I suppose they stuff. are.
1: I never saw one of those <laughs> li- lying around, though. Um, but it turns out the Rays have of a, a staff at least. It's at least as large. Yeah, which that's is remarkable. That's I'm,
3: a, I'm kind of intrigued. I mean, it's I'm intrigued by these iPads, not just because I've mean you've never it,
1: seen an iPad. Jay. No, yeah. Well, what, what, what are those like?
3: <laughs> Talk about the dawn <laughs> <What>? of time. <laughs> so <For> sure, <laughs> somebody should buy me one. I uh, so I, I can describe it. No, but I, specifically, I'm intrigued. Kind of, you know, because of course have. I I know I know a lot of. I I can guess a lot of kind of the actual sort of models and computation, stuff like that, that analysts working for baseball teams would do. But I'm very intrigued, and this is just, you know, my point my career to about that communication aspect, like how the presentation of this, because, I mean, you you have all these analytics that you've kind of computed for like upcoming games and like matchups and all this type of stuff. And how how do you effectively or not effectively (laughs) communicate that to a player? We have an. And we so, should.
0: Love to, we should have an iPad off between yeah, no, I baseball mean, I, teams. You know, like, it's interesting. Or, so, or
3: just walk me through kind of how you present data and models to, to a player to people that aren't you know that where that isn't their main subject domain.
0: Well, it's interesting because there's a, certainly. It's a, like a, it's a, like you're giving a stats paper to me. I don't I don't yeah, I don't. <laughs> well, no, no. don't give me the <laughs> yeah. equations, Chase. No, right. But part part of you But know, you right. you
3: also gotta
1: be you know you have to know your audience. So I think there's also a generation gap. I think the younger players are more used to technology, more used to thinking yeah. about data than the older mm-hmm. generation. Yeah. And also there's got to be a willingness to change your mind. So one of the things that, that Sam told me about some of the players is that what, what a great player in terms of their relation to analytics is one who come in with an open mind and are willing to change what they do relative to what is being you know, asked of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those those are what
0: makes players particularly remarkable mm-hmm. in order to do that. So I, I know that in terms of presentation, the video is an important part of it. And so, for example, Stats Bomb, the guys who are probably at the cutting edge of soccer analytics, they, they've already created their own data. They've, they co- they code up their own data. They have great analytics. And the next frontier for them is to pair it with video. Right. That's what they're trying to get funding right now to add that capacity because they know it kind of doesn't matter. And it's this interesting thing where you would and by video. I mean, you know, the ability to say punch a stat and give me a an, a, a play that yep. demonstrates that. And this yep. is this ironic thing where, as an analyst, you would think, you know, I don't need to show them a play. I've got ten thousand of them in this regression. Like, no, no, no. Actually, you give them the regression coefficient or whatever, and then give them an example in yeah. video, mm-hmm. and now you've got an actual compelling package.
1: So how would that work in soccer? So they would show you. They would have some insight, and then they would show a particular video that kind of explains it.
3: Or or, or you just link like you have kind of like you can – you know, in, in soccer, yeah, you'd be like, oh, the number. You know, when, when you go down the field in, in, in this particular formation, good things happen, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you have a link to every single time you've done that or not mm-hmm. done that. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I know we
1: did that back in the the dawn of, of analytics with baseball because you take a player like Derek, Derek Jeter and he'd make what would looks like a, spe, a spectacular play, moving to, to you know to his right and and he dives and he he spins and he throws and then you actually <laughs> do an analysis and you say, you know, well, any faster, actually, a faster player, player would have made that. <laughs> that look would have been way more routine, yeah. No. And, and then you can sort of show with mm-hmm. it, you can and if you can superimpose the the positioning and and the the time gap, you can actually see. Yeah, and that. I mean
3: we we see. I mean one of the kind of coolest <laughs> things that I've sort of sort of versions of this that I've sort of seen um, with baseball specifically is they have these sort of like. uh you know, images where they kind of – you you see a pitcher's throw and then all of a sudden like it actually expands out into like three different pitches that they did. So they actually compile um, like fabulous. three or four different pitches that this guy threw in an at-bat into one kind of image where like, right. you know, you've, you've got the starting point and then it's just – the balls kind of diverge into the uh, board. It's so it, cool. It's really neat. And I, I, I think it also is is not just neat but actually informative.
0: Yeah. No, totally.
1: So I wanted to uh, shift gears slightly. Do you have a Kay? Do you
0: have do, what you, ever, do what you ever need to do? Because I, you know, I'm going to run away and y'all can talk more baseball when I'm not here. I just want to note that I know you had more to talk about with spring training. I and do. You said you had an interview with Sabathia, which is ridiculous. I had a, cool. I had an interview with CC Sabathia. Almost got thrown out of the
1: clubhouse for doing so. No, that's not true. Um, uh, but yeah, I my did, under, did, my, my, years, and years, and my looking years. good. Looking yeah. good. <laughs> Sabathia is is. I just say <laughs> Sabathia is a very large man, and in person, he is much bigger. Than he than is. He that is. Right? Until, yeah. How he tall is. is he? He's got to be at least 6'6, 6'7. Is that tall? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, and, I did
0: not realize that.
1: And he is a he is a
0: formable. Well, it's obviously square. <laughs> so if he's tall, then my God. Yeah. So I, I will have a chance
1: maybe in the in the last half hour to bring that back. We have baseball in our second, on our first interview at uh, in at the end of our first quarter the beginning of our second quarter. We have uh, the the author of Astroball, um, Ben Ryder. Is that his correct yes, cr- right. pronunciation? He's going to come on at eight thirty and talk about some of new articles he's written in baseball. So we have a whole you know segment devoted to baseball. But I wanted to bring us back to just a little. Little bit of football before we lose Cade mm-hmm. in our open session. So Gronk, yeah, he retired. I'm very
3: sad. I'm very sad about that. And yeah, uh, I mean, I, and I was surprised how sad I was when I when I heard about that. I mean, I always had, but I really loved watching that guy, and I think we're gonna miss watching that guy because he's a very unique player.
1: So let's let me just turn it around to sort of data here. Some of us will miss him more than others. <laughs> well, no, yeah.
3: no. Obviously, yeah, but yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a Patriots bias in there, but I, I think. I'm going to make a statement. Even people who hate the Patriots, I would guess that Gronkowski is the least hated of them, because he just seemed to actually kind of—I I mean, he—he he, at least personality-wise—I well, mean, no, he seemed no, he's, to have a personality. Set the floor really know, high.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the thing is,
3: I'm getting you, pushback you, the, on this, so maybe I'm the, wrong. When here. you're
0: pulling against a team, you kind of hate these guys who are like Superman physically. yeah. Like for, Roethlisberger at, his, at the top of his game. You know, people kind of bounce off of him in the pocket. And yeah. he just somehow, he always made it work. And if you're pulling against the Steelers, that's just painful. Yeah, That's the way Gronkowski feels. It's a little bit like watching a guy play, like a high school kid playing football with his junior high little brothers and, yeah. and their friends. You know, it's a little bit like that. It's like really hard to pull for the guy <laughs> when the junior high kids are just bouncing <laughs> off of him. So, you know? so
1: flesh this out a little bit. Right. Okay, so a couple of things that I want to hear from you guys is, so it's just easily tossed off that he's the best tight end yeah. who ever lived and i want to ask you why but before my second question is 29 seems extraordinarily young so can you right. put those two things together yeah that makes sense why shouldn't why should he be retiring
3: well i mean a, i i think he has had an incredibly you know rich injury history i mean he's been injured a lot in his career and even he, he, he was even he got to the Patriots you know because he he, he moved he was kind of like saw down in the draft because he was injured in college as well and people were worried that 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 he would never have a good career because of injuries. And I think it just comes from the fact that he is, because of his size, very hard to tackle. So, you know, there is kind of the only way to tackle him is to go for his knees and go for his legs and and try. and, And that just leads to a lot of injuries.
1: Is it not ridiculous for him to imagine taking a year off, recover no, and it's get a, stronger? A, you know, ridiculous. retirement's not permanent, fun fact, <laughs> right? right, fun right?
3: Fact. So, I mean, he's not now locked into never <laughs> right. playing again. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of Patriots fans, myself included, that are, like, soothing themselves by being like, wouldn't it be amazing if, like, well, you well, know, some you... December or January game all of a sudden he comes running okay, out of the so tunnel? That's, that's so Matty different...
1: Dash just sent uh, me a note. He did take an entire year off in 2009. That's 10 years ago. He must have been a child. At that point, yeah. I, was, I think it was a
0: senior of co- a senior season of college, I think, yeah. right? Well, I think, what well, one, what age is Jay Whitten? He's coming back.
3: Oh, he's uh, in his like 32, 33, something like no, that. No, he's
0: much older. Is he? Yeah, he retired. He does a year in 36, wow, so he 36, does, he does, a, does okay. a year in the booth, and now he's coming mm-hmm. back. So he's got a apparently, uh, apparently Gronk has a few years to. And he there's a few an few under for him. Like, hey, how many years one. until he comes back? But. I don't. In, what? Well, Machuro
1: we retired. Oh, he's not coming back. No. No, but he's he, he, <laughs> he like four hundred or
0: something. <laughs> But it, it's never too early these yeah. days in football, given what we know. You can't yeah. argue any decision by a by an athlete to say, "Look, I, I'm making my life decision, and it's based on injury risk and unknowns that might accumulate over time." And I'm just, I'm gonna. Check yeah, out no, I,
3: I mean, I can completely see from his perspective. And again, he's going obviously going out on top, but you know, it's
0: just a, it's a personal. We could say that right. e- either way. I don't. You can't hold it against him if they're going to play as long as they can. And you're never gonna be on the football field again. You're you're never gonna cash that check again. I and mean, you may cash other kinds of checks, but this is a highly, highly personal decision. I, yeah. I would you can retire in college or retire when you're 43 and i don't think you can argue but
1: it's very that. interesting i mean he does join a, a long summit long list of people who retired really at the top yeah um and yes because they were having injuries i mean the, the but classic, i think he's gonna join gonna i mean give a classic
0: ba- he's going to gonna tell us something from the 1950s in baseball what what's
1: gonna happen here we go sandy koufax
0: oh
3: 60s yeah.
1: <laughs> retired at 31 and in mm-hmm. fact when he was asked just straight out why are you retiring i mean he had a he want he was the best pitcher in the league and then he retired he basically said i had to predict my future and i want a future where i can lift." my arm wow Jeez. and and someone and he said that's just he he actually said something very interesting almost from a from a, a cognitive reasoning perspective he said if someone can't move their arm and say they're paralyzed how much do you think they would pay to get that that ability back. Yeah, right. And he yeah. said the amount would be inconceivably large. And that's
0: essentially what you're asking me to do. So it doesn't matter what the probability is, but it's inconceivably it's, large. And yeah. so
1: I'm just done. And that's that's what pretty much leaves Gronk. So that actually brings to close our first uh, segment, and we'll come back with some more baseball. we had a charming half hour racing through a whole bunch of sports. This is definitely a busy season, but it is... Certainly, baseball yeah. is uh, foremost in, in everyone's mind because of Opening Day. That is uh, tomorrow. Although technically speaking, the Mariners have already faced. Yeah, the A's no, we've out already had a couple
3: games in the books.
1: And uh, and to usher in our baseball season, we have joining us on the phone this morning is Ben Ryder, who is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, which he joined in 2004, and he's written over 25 cover stories. But he's most famous in our circles for writing um, the book Astroball, The New Way to Win It All, which was released in paperback just this week. So I'd like to welcome Ben Ryder to well back to Wharton Moneyball. Ben, great to have you on.
2: Thanks, guys. Good morning.
1: Well, yeah, it is certainly spectacular. I don't know where you are right now. Um, which, which great American city, I guess, you're in somewhere?
2: I'm in New York, where it's uh, clear but cold. I guess
1: you'd say <laughs> clear but cold, indeed. I think it was about 32 this morning, and uh, there's a game tomorrow. 50, maybe, maybe we'll see 55. That should be nice. Is that uh, for baseball? It seems we're starting earlier than earlier than ever. We're sort sort of in March. So let's let's hear a little bit about what you're up to. Um, so, what has been the reaction to Astro Ball since it first came out?
2: Well, the reaction's been fantastic. I think that people have really embraced uh, the ideas in there, specifically the big ones about focusing on process over outcome, how the Astros did that, and how they kind of moved beyond, or I I shouldn't say moved beyond Moneyball, but really started to use data in a different way uh, and and looking at a much wider range of inputs as far as making their decisions, uh, including quantifying things like their scout's gut instincts and the human factor, really, trying to combine man and machine to get the best out of both, obviously, this has paid serious dividends for them, not only the World Series in 2017, which some of us thought might happen, but almost getting there last year in the ALCS, and of course they enter season three of their ascendance as one of the top two or three favorites to again bring home a ring.
1: Well, absolutely, and so tell me exactly what you mean by that when you say this, this amalgam of... of- of sort of data and and human beings and, and and is there any particular example you can bring to the to the front that sort of you know kind of sort of exemplifies this this combination or, or,
3: or yeah or like what what is it part of their organizational. What is it about their organization? How do they actually implement this kind of idea of, like, focusing on process over outcome?
0: Ben, let me jump in as well real quickly because I had an interesting moment with, with Luno. He came through here in the fall. He came through in the fall for a sports business conference, and he was a keynote speaker, and I had the chance to interview him. And I had just read your book, and it was great prep for the interview, by the way, obviously, and great book. I, 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 I pimp your book all the time. I'm going to mostly shut up and let let the baseball guys do the interview. But I want to say this one thing that Luno said to me. I said, Hey, you know, I read the whole damn thing. The book is, the premise of the book is that y'all have figured out how to blend the old school scouts with the new school technology. And I just want to know how you did it. I want to know details. And he just kind of smiled. I said, You didn't let him write the real details, did you? And he just smiled. And so that's kind of the, the, I I mean, I'm giving you a hard time with, with the, with the kernel of truth in there. It's like the book is phenomenal. But you 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 seemed c- constrained. You weren't able to really lay out the details of how it is that they blend the blend the scouts with the analysts. If I if I'm not wrong,
2: well, it's certainly more a, of a conceptual uh, thing than really kind of getting into their algorithms or anything like that. But I think that they had sensed that the pendulum had swung uh, almost too far towards Moneyball, towards just hard statistics, and was not capturing all those soft inputs that they thought. Uh, perhaps traditional stats uh, weren't reflecting. You know, they think that there is value in human expertise in uh, the gut instincts that scouts have developed over their long careers in baseball. I think they think that if you're simply following, uh, you know, stats, OPS, OBP, uh, even some of the more advanced trackman uh, statistics, then you're not going to have an advantage over over the rest of the league. Maybe what? that 10% difference uh, might come from your human factors, the soft inputs. That, uh, you know, that not everybody has. So I think what they did, or I know what they did, is they combined all those inputs into one decision making system, and they were incredibly disciplined as far as following it, uh, to guide really every one of the thousands and thousands of decisions they made, not only draft picks, but free agent signings, contract extensions. Uh, no team's been more data driven than the Astros. And the results have been phenomenal.
1: But here's the the thing: in the early days of Moneyball, no one was using the data that was sitting in front of everyone's faces. Mm-hmm. Just the data that you can collect by watching the game. The, they were ignoring things like OBP, and they weren't. They were thinking about things just sort of you know ass backwards. That everyone is integrated right now, and there's a whole you know group of people. You can call them college players, or, or high school players, or, or international players, for which we don't have that kind of data, which you really have to rely on the scouts. Instincts to to sort of you know bring it forward, and I'm going to bring us to an article that you just wrote about Mike Trout. Mike Trout was in high school, and only one team drafted him. And how and the question is, how did everyone sort of miss potentially the the greatest player of this generation? And that has that's a decision that has to be made by scouts. Can you comment a little bit about Mike Trout and and what and how a team may react to his information?
2: Sure. Well, yeah, you're right. You don't have the statistical information. For Mike Mike Trout, he plays in New Jersey. As we know today, uh, baseball season is very cold in New Jersey. High school players in New Jersey might play 16 games, you know, three or four of them snowed out. So you just don't have that body of stats that you like to have to make an informed decision on it. So you really have to rely on what your scouts are seeing, in part, probably more heavily, actually, for high school players uh, than anybody else. Uh, just because those stats are unreliable, you don't understand necessarily the level of competition against which they were put up. So for the Astros, the decision to draft Mike Trout was a scouting decision. It really was a scout called Greg Moorhart who went to New Jersey, saw this guy, and felt a firelight somewhere in the back of his brain that this guy has greatness within him. Now, I, the article you're talking about. I spoke with Billy Bean, who got a bit exercised, actually, when I was asking him, why don't you guys take Mike Trout? Did they have a higher us? pick?
1: Did they, they had an opportunity to take
2: him before. Yeah, they yeah. had the 13th pick. Look, 22 teams that year had the opportunity to take Mike Trout, and none of them did. Uh, as we know, the A's preferred to go with college players, as they did that year. They picked a shortstop named Grant Green out of USC, who's not even in the league anymore, because college pitch, college players were safer. They're more predictable. Ben, well, that's ben, what Wendy wrote about. about,
0: yeah. Ben, you said Bean got exercised when you raised this. What, what did he say?
2: <laughs> well, he basically told me, he's like, look, like, we liked Mike Trout a lot, but we weren't one of the only teams to skip him. Uh, we, we, we weren't the only team to pass on him. 22 teams passed on him. Uh, the question you should be asking is why did the Angels pick him? And that's the <laughs> question I did ask the Angels. Look, it's not. Did like, they have an
1: answer to that? I mean, what, what, what did what did Mike Trout demonstrate in high school that was visible to anyone? It was just entirely hindsight. Are we looking back at Mike Trout as, as a senior in high school and thinking to ourselves, given what we've seen about him now, there must be something
3: available? Or was it just we the word of this one scout? <laughs>
2: uh, it was a collection of moments. And look, let's be real. A lot of this is clouded by retrospect. Like mm-hmm. now that we know he's Mike Trout, yeah, you're a scout. You can go back in your memory and be like, oh, I knew he was going to be great when he did this. But when you talk to these guys, there are specific moments. You know, like Trout was pulling the ball down the left field line uh, in this, I guess, pre, pre-game BP. And he wasn't an office field field hitter at all. And the scout said, hey, Mike, you know, why don't you just try to hit a few the other way? Next pitch, he hit like 10 in a row down the right field line <laughs> or starting on the next pitch. He just had this control of his body. This explosive athleticism, even at 17, that simply jumped off the field to somebody who's been watching high school games in New Jersey for 30 years.
0: So, Ben, the, the statistically, what we'd always want to ask is: okay, if you 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 got to pit that against all the times that the you you use this phrase, the firelight went off in the back of the guy's head. How many times that happened in the past that didn't pay off? That's the thing that's missing in this analysis. Is like there are lots of false positives in these yeah. situations, and and, and, we, and we'd and lose track of the Validation, I think mm-hmm. this is the, the key yeah. thing.
2: That's right. And, and availability, right? Like, the, it's, a, it's a memory of an incredibly emotionally satisfying event that overshadows maybe many other similar events that uh, didn't pan out in a, in a similar way. Uh, I, look, <laughs> that's part of the art of scouting. Really but but, right?
3: what, but I, I, I think it also kind of does segue a little bit into this sort of investment in variance, right, is that, you know, I mean, if, if if these types of players like Mike Trout are just kind of these, like, maybe it's just completely unpredictable that somebody like that would, would come about, then maybe you want sort of a scouting team or like an organization that has some of these kind of more unconventional people as part of it. And, you know, yeah, you're going to, probably get unlucky with a large number of, of, of these kind of, you know, players that you take on. But if if you, you you maybe want to almost have like kind of, you know, allow yourself a chance to get somebody like Mike Trout might be like more investing in, in kind of variance and maybe taking sort of one of these more unconventional strategies at times.
2: I'll take you back to something that Jeff Luno said and that I write in Astro Bowl. They view assembling an organization with almost a portfolio approach, right? you got your safe bets. Those would probably be, like, high-performing college players. And then you have your high-variance flyers, right, like the volatile assets that could burn out or just as easily uh, turn into all-stars. Arguably, the first pick that the Astros ever made or that Jeff Luno's Astros made, the first overall pick in 2012 of Carlos Correa was one of those high-variance picks. I right? you know? just, just want to interrupt here. School,
1: how could a first yep. pick be a high variance? You'd think that that's that's generally not. That's more the. But We just talked about
0: Trout. Trout was first round. He was just first uncertainty. round. Well, uncertainty. He was uncertain. Well, that's the point. So as opposed to say yeah. a college player who's more take, predictable.
3: Take, yeah, you know, you're a taking pitcher. a more uncertain player with your high picks.
1: So what was what what did they see in Carlos Carrera that other people weren't seeing?
3: Well,
2: uh, they saw a couple of things. I mean, he was a high school player, first of all, so that's riskier mm-hmm. uh, by its nature. He was from Puerto Rico, which at that time in 2012 hadn't produced very many good players in a long time. His baseball tradition was great, but it, it seemed as if the level of competition had gone down there. Uh, but this was, again, it was a combination of uh, analytics, of like liking some of the metrics that they were seeing from him and his showcases that he played in, in Florida and stuff. And it was a strong scouting pick. Mike Elias, who was then assistant general manager and scouting director for uh, Jeff Luno, saw Correa again and again and again. And he said he just got this feeling, seeing him, that this is what great young players look like. We were talking about Mike Trout going the opposite way. He describes very clearly this one swing where Correa hit a ball like 15 feet in the air straight down the opposite field foul line that hit the foul pole. He says he'd never seen anything like that before. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about scouts who can pick things up uh, just based on their long experience. They picked Carlos Correa number one overall. Of course, that worked out very well, and it worked out for Mike Elias, too, as he's now the new GM of the Baltimore Orioles, where he's going to try to institute a similar plan to the one the worked So maybe maybe
1: we'll see Orioles uh, start their fortune start to rise with with better management. But I want to bring it back to Elias more specifically. So he, you've actually told us some nice tales about what he saw in Carlos Correa and it became. And this is a great pick. Obviously, this is one of the foundational uh, picks for for the current Astro teams. But. Was there any kind of analysis of the scouts? In other words, how often did Elias say things? Did like this, and how? And you know, bringing back what Cade's earlier remarks, or well, we have hindsight bias. So, is there any attempt when you look at this data that is coming from the human to kind of uh, analyze it, categorize it, and predict it, and 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 validate it? Were the Astros doing things like
2: that with their scouts? Oh yeah, they were. They were rigorously kind of analyzing and scouting their own scouts to, explore, to uh, discover flaws in their methodology or uh, kind of good information that comes out of their methodology. What they would do that is you have a body of data as far as scouting grades that these guys have given to prospects over the long bodies of their career, right? On the scouting, That's you know, right. as we know, it mm-hmm. runs from 20 to 80. So you have this huge body of data. Uh, as far as the, their evaluations of players in the past in all sorts of areas. You know, the guy's fastball, uh, his swing, his potential to hit for power, all this stuff. And you also have outcomes for these things. Like, you know how these players to whom scout, these scouts assigned these grades turned out. So they would run regression analyses on them. You know, if you've given a, wow. a it 60, <laughs> 60 to the fastball of, you know, 99 previous pitchers, they know how those pitchers panned out. So then if you gave another 60 to hundredth pitcher, uh, they had a pretty idea how that would pan out as well. And an interesting thing is it was also useful if the scouts were wrong as, far, as long as they were consistently wrong. Like if a scout was consistently undergrading or under-evaluating a particular attribute in a player, uh, they'd have a pretty good idea that uh that that player was better at that particular thing than the scouts
1: thought it's interesting it's like it's like the person who consistently makes the wrong turn. They actually always know where they're going
0: and just go the opposite way
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean this is something we all ought to do in our organizations. We all make forecasts. How often do we log them and then and then importantly come back and revisit them i, I you know you'd expect baseball to be further ahead. they have better detailed forecast and longer history, but i do I know that there are some football teams that do the same thing that that ask their scouts on an annual basis to revisit their old grades and come up with kind of their strengths and weaknesses. What is it – you know, where are your false positives? Where are your false negatives? That kind of review is vital in this business. But it's interesting one of
1: the important uh, aspects of getting this done is actually – Collecting information as you're you're producing it, and so, instead of, you know, sort of letting it disappear. You know, you have to have these reports. That's right, and I don't think yeah. you, in most organizations you don't necessarily collect it. Well, right.
3: I mean, I saw a really interesting. I, I, I'm not sure if, if, if you all saw this as well. There's a really interesting uh, art, a, a series of articles about people who are revisiting uh, scouting reports from the Cincinnati you know, this Reds. Lindbergh's article, did, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Cincinnati Red scouting reports from like the mid 90s on
0: on and through. You're talking about. Uh, public, uh, pub. This never happens, right? Yeah. So They got they got a trove of these scouting reports and all the detail for years, yeah. and they were able to d- really dive into them.
3: Yeah, and I, I mean, like obviously, that's not to the public. That's probably going to be rare that that kind of information is available. But you know, a good team will. Presumably, you know, a big part of like again improving your process is 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 continuing to compile those reports and revisit those reports, even you know, ten years out, fifteen years out. So, tell us a little bit about what the Astros uh, have done with data um, in other directions that
1: are really at the f- at the forefront or the frontier of, of baseball. Because baseballs, in many senses, have been doing this the longest. So, the standard things are they're moving kind of more in a new dir- in new direction, maybe more, more behind the scenes. So, in your experience with the Astros, what should we be looking? for in analytics in baseball going forward?
2: Right. Well, there's a clear shift going on in, right now in baseball. At this point, as far as talent identification, uh, using analytics to kind of figure out who the bright players are to draft and acquire, uh, the landscape's really flattened here. There's not that much of a competitive advantage to be had there anymore. Clearly, you can get better and better, but those games are marginal. You know, Sig Dell, the former director of decision sciences with the Astros, who's now the assistant general manager for Michael Elias in Baltimore, said, sometimes we look back and dream of the days we were alone at the bus bay.
1: Mm-hmm. There's
2: a shift, though. It's shifting from talent ID to talent improvement, to use data and analytics to improve the performance of the players that you've already acquired.
1: Like the Trevor Bauer yeah, story, or, for example.
2: Right. Trevor Bauer, uh, and I wrote a long story in Sports Illustrated about him, uh, I guess about a month ago, He's been individually at the forefront of this for a long time, but he'll say there is a huge gap. And this is a member of the Cleveland Indian, Trevor Bauer. He said, he said a lot of teams have become more advanced, much more advanced quickly in the past couple of years. There's still an enormous gap between number one and the rest of the league. And number one to Trevor Bauer is the Astros. Okay. They've had these programs in place for a couple of years now that continue to ramp up. Uh, to really improve, you know, like take a pitcher, right? Uh, they have high-speed cameras made by a company called Edgertronic. Uh, they use Rapsodo and TrackMan technology that can reveal the spin rate of a pitcher's pitches, uh, the spin axis at which, which he's throwing it, the vertical and horizontal break. You combine that technology with these high-speed cameras that can zero in, uh, focus in on the behavior of a pitcher's individual fingers as he releases each pitch, this can reveal kind of the way that a pitcher throws pitches that behave the most effectively as far as flummoxing opposing batters. It's a training technique whereby pitchers can learn which are their best pitches, exactly what they look like, and how they can throw them more often than not. Uh, this is really high tech stuff guys. So Ben and I just wanted
1: to just we have only about a minute left, so we wanted to ask you specifically so the, a- the Astros are currently doing this and certain individual I guess players are doing it almost on their own initiative like like Trevor Bauer. But what fr- how much penetration has this new technology had with most teams?
2: It's funny. Last year I wouldn't have said very much but this year traveling around spring training, you saw those little Etronic cameras at virtually every site. So every team is trying to catch up with what the Astros are doing. But uh, I'm not sure they're there yet. They're
1: there yet. And so what do you think the next step would be, other than um, sort of these high-tech cameras? Is it going to be, you know, medical or health-oriented?
2: Yeah, I, I think that a lot of medical stuff, I think, look, even down to the minor leagues, I think there's a lot of advantages that to be captured in the minor leagues, even as far as what these guys are eating. You know, these are supposed wow. to be high-level athletes, and they're often eating, like, uh, fast food and peanut butter and jelly. sandwich. There's a lot of ways to go. <laughs>
1: hey, what's wrong with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Listen, Ben, it was really uh, delightful to have you on our show this morning, and uh, we're all looking forward to the baseball season. And we're continually looking forward to reading the you know new stories by you. They're really sensational. So thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks,
0: guys. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on
1: Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here. At the Wharton School of Business in the Sears XM studios, listening to Channel 132. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business Department of Statistics, and I'm joined with my colleague and friend Shane Jensen, also of the Department of Statistics here at the Wharton School. We just lost Cade Massey for at least the next half hour. Maybe he'll join us on uh, the last half hour, and he comes back from his uh, gig. And Eric Bradlow is away, which is too bad because we know how much they love NCAA basketball and March Madness, which is right in the middle of its madness. Dumb in the here in the middle of March, or actually, I think it gets settled in April, but that's uh, that's just a technicality. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing that we do have Ken Palm who's going to join us here just in a second. But if you want to call in and ask any questions, you can call in at eight four four nine four two seven eight six six that's one eight four four Wharton. And you can of course email at businessradio at serious dot com if you have any questions. Um I'm sure Ken Palm would be very interesting. So just give you a quick intro. He is the creator of a popular college basketball website and a statistical arch- archive. I remember when we first started our show, Ken I was the only one doing serious statistical analysis for the NCAA tournament. Um, his work is on tempo based basketball statistics. Um, what that means is that you are kind of scaling on a, on, a, on a time frame. So you don't want to just look at totals. You want to kind of compare that to rates, which of course is a very effective method of making an analysis and some people think of him as the build Bill James of, of basketball. Um, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Pomeroy. So, Ken, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball.
4: Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
1: We certainly appreciate you coming on right here in the middle of the tournament. Um, I have to say that uh, I've used you in previous years to, uh, last year I actually won my little, my little tournament. Um, and I do think that that's because there was a little bit of gap between what you were saying and what the rankings were saying. And I think that's where I want to start our interview this morning to talk about that is that there seems to be an enormous amount of what people are using chalky, which I think refers to the, the bookies who used to write their, their brackets up uh, in chalk. Um, so this has been a, a chalky year, but it's it's also began as almost in a, as a kind of quasi-chalky where the rankings kind of matched up, at least in my, in my estimation, with the Ken Pomeroy rank, uh, rankings. And, and, and-, and
3: the seedings themselves seem to be, I mean, you know, it's easy. We're, we're kind of retrospectively analyzing, but the fact that, you know, the seedings seem to, the, the results seem to be going by the seedings. Is, are we, you know, are we doing a better job of seeding this tournament this year or is it kind of just, you know, is this kind of a one-off type of phenomenon?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to say what the what the future holds, but, you know, certainly your observation is correct. Uh, you know, this year was uh, different from years past, and that there really wasn't that team that kind of stood out from a seeding standpoint as either being, uh, you know, fundamentally better than their seed or, or fundamentally worse than their seed. Like the, the top eight teams are all seeded, you know, one and two. So, uh, you know, we had, I think, a clear – Uh, you know, top eight there. And that that
1: doesn't usually happen. So in the previous years, that's not always the case, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, whether that was a fluke or whether the committee was actually mindful of power ratings when they were doing the seedings, I guess, is something we don't really know. But, yeah, it's extremely unusual.
1: So I think there's, in some sense there's penetration now in basketball with the, the statistics is becoming... You know, more integrated in people's thought processes and, and it's not, you're not likely to see, you know, big deviations, at least for, at the top. And that's probably what happened this year. And of course, one of the things that, that happened this year from a betting perspective, someone has already, has already picked a perfect bracket, 48 out of 48. What do you think? Uh, I mean, from a mathematical perspective, I mean, obviously to calculate the odds of that, you have to know the probabilities of each of the outcomes before they start. And that's kind of hard, but your, your system more or less does that. What do you, do you think that you would have ever seen that happen?
4: Yeah, I guess I've never considered, you know, getting to to 48. Uh I was mean, certainly getting to uh 63, which I guess is what most bracket contests require. Uh when you you know you pick perfectly through the championship game. I mean, the odds of that are are astronomical even when all the favorites win. So, uh uh there's still a long way to go. I guess. Sure, there's saying, a long way to go.
1: Now, now they're actually kind of close, right? The, the rankings at this point, all the te- the gap between the teams are not that large, and you can it's going to be almost r- ridiculous to imagine someone picking the rest of the way through because the probabilities are probably. What's the what's the what's the closest game coming up in the next round?
4: Uh, that's a, a good question. Though. You know, a lot of them are, are pretty tight. Um, certainly, uh, you know, Purdue Tennessee, I guess, is one of those. That's you know. Maybe almost a coin flip. Texas Tech, Michigan. You know those games are are close, but there's really not a game out there where you're like, you know, there's an obvious winner. Even Virginia, Oregon, which is a one versus a twelve seed. You know, the point spread's like I think eight eight and a half points at this point. So uh, you know that's a game that's still a maybe the favorite has a you know eighty yeah. percent chance to win.
3: No, and I mean that's kind of the trade off. The fact that we've had so such a kind of chalky, you know. Um, tournament up to now means that we do not have any of these kind of mismatches right. or, or, or putative mismatches uh, in the Sweet 16.
1: So a, a chalky first half re- produces a more uncertain second half in some yeah. sense.
4: Yep, yep, theoretically. So even though there's only 15 games left, you know, it's not it's not 15 coins left, but there's... Uh you know a lot of close matches they're fairly close to, to it 15 games and
1: stuff well although i have to say if they're 15 coin t- coin flips it's not unlikely that someone can can you just guess and go to the end i mean it's not ridiculously likely but it's less than a million or around a one in a million shot if you just tossed a coin and got you know 15 in a row guesses so i want to take you back to some certain some specific things so last year we had a, a first round upset virginia lost in the first round uh, which we had never seen before and um and this year, they're—I think—they're your your favorite if you go by your rankings. Um, but they're they're certainly a very interesting team. Do you still hold by them as the the, the most likely you know tournament winner?
2: Uh, <laughs> you don't want I to mean, be put on the have, spot here, right?
4: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think if you're a fan, you have to have some trepidation about that. You know, not only do they lose to a 16 seed, but they also play at the country's slowest pace in terms of their possession length. So, but that's not new to you.
1: You've known this all along. So. If you
4: yeah. were, I I, mean, I think the issue is like no, you know, there's been no champion that's played at that pace. So even though you can look at their possession numbers and say, yeah, wow, like on a possession basis, on you know, based on what they score per possession and what they allow, like this team should be the favorite. Uh, you know, there's not a history for a team playing that slowly, and that is obviously not incorporated into the model. So. Uh, they are a very interesting team, and I'm just fascinated to see how things kind of play out here.
1: So, just to give me some some numerical, um, you know, context of this. So, how slow are they relative to, say, Duke? I mean, what is the what are the numbers?
4: So, you know, I have Duke playing at one of the fastest paces in the country. They they play at 72.1 possessions per game, and, and Virginia at 59.2. So, they're about 13, 13 possessions per game slower. You know, roughly eight possessions per game slower than the national average. I mean, it doesn't seem like a, a lot, but, uh, you know, again, when you look at history, there are teams that play slow and win a national title, but there, there's never been a team that's played the slowest pace in, you know, among all 300-plus teams in the country.
3: And just to give some kind of context for that to our listeners, one of the reasons we kind of, I, I think, are, are are particularly intrigued by this kind of difference in pace of play is that, you know, Although Virginia is good on kind of a per possession basis, obviously they're one of the top in the country on a per possession basis. The less possessions you have uh, in a, in a game, the more kind of variability you're essentially introducing into that game, right? There's there's more right, kind right. of like there's more potentially more lower n an op- as you would say. In yeah, the there's system. there's lower amounts of you know n, and, and so there's just a. a you know, to the extent that there's a, a a chance that a lesser team can beat Virginia, I think they're, they're almost kind of increasing that variation or that that uncertainty of outcome by having that slower pace. of play. Well,
1: I mean, if you just look at their upset last year in a slow pace, if you if you take say 20 3 point shots and make say four of them, and your opposing team makes twenty and makes twelve, which is not unheard of variation just by yeah. but just by the natural frequencies, you can just lose. And so it would it would my uh, my question is. Doesn't seem to be an advantage to play slow, so I must be missing it. So, what is the advantage for them playing slow?
4: Well, I mean, inherently, there's some advantage in their system. So, uh, you know, most teams, when you have a great offense, most teams don't want to play super slow. Like, there are good offenses that play slow, but uh, teams don't want to be running up against the shot clock. If they're a good offense, they should be able to get a, a decent shot earlier in the shot clock. But for Virginia, for some reason, Uh, this is the style they prefer. They prefer to, to use time offensively, and it's been very effective. And if they, you know, they only lost three games all season. So theoretically, if they tried to play some other style, it probably would be uh, less optimal than what they've done. So you, you can't argue with the track record over the past two seasons, especially during the regular season. It's just when you get to the tournament, you know, is there something that, that changes that makes that style, uh, you know, less effective against good teams trying to sell out on every possession.
1: So you're saying that maybe the slow style is effective for dominating the regular season, but potentially is a little bit um, anxiety-driven or or, or, or upset um, more likely because of that slow play.
4: Yes, yeah. I mean, explaining you know figuring out why is the challenge, and right. uh, You know, so you know the, the variance thing is a, a great point if all the possessions are independent, but. you know, it's possible during the regular season if you're playing – so Virginia plays 59 possessions. If you're playing 72 possessions, maybe, you know, you're taking some of those possessions off or whatever just because, you know, you get tired, it's a long game, whatever. Um, So, you know, the variance effect, the difference between 59 and 72, in effect, is not really much of a difference. But when you get into the tournament, it's possible that uh, you don't take those possessions off anymore because you know there's no tomorrow, and then that variance effect becomes – more real That's a, a theory and uh, again since we really only have Virginia playing this extreme pace we don't have a a lot of examples to really test this you, out on
1: you basically have a sample size of one virginia we've never well really
4: seen I, it. I mean i mean
3: certainly yeah. we we've not Perhaps not seen this amount of kind of like, you know, Virginia sort of standing out from the crowd as much. But, I mean, historically, it must be the case that there is variation across teams in the pace of play historically. And you could at least look at whether or not there is some kind of relationship between that and, like, you know, probability of upset or something like that. I don't know if somebody's done that.
4: I mean I haven't gotten that, that specific. I mean the fact is like teams, you know, win all the time playing a slower than average pace. Villanova last year was a slower than average team. You know, Wisconsin famously over the last decade has had really slow teams that have been very successful. So um, so there are examples out there of teams that have had success. It's just is there a is there a point where it just gets too extreme Right, things of right. uh, break down? Yeah. And then
3: that's the part where you can't really point to historical data as much. Well, So actually, I want to change
1: gears slightly a little bit. One of the things that makes college sports particularly interesting and very different from professional sports is these are young athletes. And uh, over the course of a season, and uh, they get not only older, but the impact of experience is potentially quite dramatic. So as as a as an NCA basketball analyst, how do you think about the evolution of a young team throughout a, throughout this the season and in general how do you think about non-stationarity in a in, a, in an NCA basketball season meaning the what do you do with teams that seem to get better or if you will hot at the end of the season and how does that uh, how do you take that into your into account?
4: Yeah, I mean that's another huge challenge I've, you know, I've done a little research on how younger teams you know tend to improve more in terms of their shooting than older teams but that effect is pretty small uh you know it's probably swamped by just teams as you say suddenly getting hot i mean Oregon is probably the best example of that this year where they struggled all season underperformed and then you know now they've won uh, i think 10 in a row coming into the sweet 16 and uh it's not just that they won 10 in a row 10 in a row they appear to be fundamentally like a much better team during that streak than they were before that. You know, some, sometimes it's an illusion. Sometimes you just get hot. You know, you just have to play, happen to play over your head for various reasons that may not have anything to do with your actual ability, but uh, it does appear that Oregon has a special ability and uh, it's hard to, hard to quantify that and hard to know how much to kind of adjust their uh, probabilities now that they appear to be a different team.
1: So what was Oregon's sort of preseason ranking?
4: The preseason ranking actually was, uh, was pretty high. They were kind of a, uh borderline top twenty five team. Uh you know, a lot of people thought they were a top twenty five team. My computer rating saw them at twenty six. And uh and they currently sit at twenty seven, so it sounds like maybe it was a boring year, but uh <laughs> you know they they plumbed the depths of you know, they're in the you know the sixties pushing the 70, 70s. uh you know so they had uh, a really
3: underwhelming first half of the
4: season. Yeah, not even first half, really first two thirds and mm-hmm. uh they wouldn't even be here had they not had kind of a quasi miracle comeback in the semifinals of the Pac-12 tournament. They weren't going to get in that large bid, so they had to win that tournament and they uh, they ultimately did, but uh yeah, it's been uh it's been a wild ride for them.
1: Yeah, because one of the things that we went I remember in our very early days of our show, we were just kind of getting our feet wet with various different, you know, sports. Nate Silver had had uh kind of his NCAA tournament picking strategy he said shrink back towards the preseason mean and his basic perspective was yes you know a lot a lot happens during the season but it doesn't overwhelm your and it shouldn't completely overwhelm what you thought about the team in the very beginning and particularly i remember that season kentucky was supposed to be the star team had a mediocre season and they were in the tournament and he said shrink back towards their their initial estimate of their strength because you shouldn't forget about that 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 data that you started with yeah and i mean it's
3: just interesting because i mean i think you know in, in every sport that we kind of cover there's this idea that you know if you're start if you want to predict what's going to happen in a particular season obviously at the start of the season all you have is your pre-season idea of how good these teams are and then as they can as they start playing the games you slowly kind of wash out that preseason idea and, to, and by the end of the season you're usually left with only their in-season performance and your preseason kind of notions are, are kind of completely you know out of there but Nate Silver is kind of arguing that no, that that preseason should you know there's not enough day you know data or information in a full NCAA season. You still you don't have that prior completely washed out.
1: Particularly with freshmen, yeah. you have these uh, these very young you know recent graduates of high school, and they're likely to go on to the to professionals the next year. And when you collect them in one team, and they don't do well, it means that they're just trying to get their act together. What do you think about?
4: Yeah, no question. Uh, those are good points. I mean, you. Uh, the other thing is the season is so short. Uh, you know, I mean, right now teams have played thirty to thirty-five games, but you know, maybe uh, a third of those games are against kind of really inferior competition. So you know, you might have twenty or twenty-five you know really meaningful games, and you can imagine if uh, you know you just took a twenty-game slice of the NBA season, you know, you'd find all sorts of weird teams in various slices, you know, performing well or performing close or uh, poorly. So uh yeah there's no question that uh that that preseason uh you know data that you have or or instinct that you have is uh still certainly very useful and uh you often you know you often see teams that the teams that overperform or underperform in the NCAA tournament relative to my ratings uh you can look back at the preseason rating and get some feel for uh you know maybe that uh, initial um thought you know, something was more meaningful than, or as meaningful, even as the the data during the whole season.
1: So, Ken, one of the things that that you emphasize in your in your analysis are these what we call tempo free statistics. So, this essentially um, divides by the number of possessions, and everything is kind of scaled in a way that's not customary to most, you know, observers who are sort of typically thinking about, you know, points or um, total points and rebounds, assists, the standard way we think about you know, basketball. This has got to be very important, particularly at the collegiate level. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners what it means to use tempo-free statistics and, and what advantage that gives you, particularly for the NCAA?
4: Yeah, so I mean, using the Virginia and Duke example, uh, you know, Virginia, I don't know what they rank in terms of scoring uh, per game on the season, but it's not very good because they only, you know, they only have 59 possessions per game. Even though their offense on a per possession basis is great, uh, in bulk and total points scored, it, it doesn't look that great. But uh, it's all about opportunities. So, you know, when Virginia plays Duke, there will be the same number of possessions for each team because each team alternates having the ball. Uh, so it's important to know not what they score per game, but what they score per possession. And then, you know, once you have an idea of how many possessions will be in a game, you can predict a score. So uh, it really comes down to opportunities. You know, how many what you do when you have the ball, what, how, how good is your offense when you have the ball, how good of a rebounding team are you when there's a rebound, how often do you commit turnovers relative to the number of possessions. Um, you, know, you can't really make fair comparisons from, from team to team, especially teams that play different paces, uh, without accounting for those opportunities. So that's, uh, that's kind of the philosophy behind using tempo-free statistics.
1: And how, how much do you emphasize sort of wins in your, in your sort of power rankings?
4: Uh, really, not not at all. Uh, not at all. I'm not wow, a- <laughs> not at <Yeah>. all.
1: <laughs> that's great.
4: <laughs> yeah, coaches are uh, filling their coffee right now. But um, and I'm not saying that's the perfect way to do it, but largely, uh, you know, events at the end of games, especially you know, one possession games, like the difference between a one point win and a one point loss is not all that different between the difference between a one point win and a three point win. Uh, so you know, it's basically uh, kind of leveraging that principle, you know, in my ratings to, to use that and just kind of assume that closed games are pretty much entirely locked, Which again, they're not. But teams have uh, much less skill at winning close games than I think the uh, casual observer thinks.
3: Yeah, and I mean, like it, it's maybe not completely luck, but it, that also means that just because the a team has some sort of like maybe slightly larger propensity to 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 win close games, that's not necessarily. Going to be all that valuable, predictively, prospectively, going forward, right?
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you know, ultimately, the teams that are great are the ones that are able to dominate good competition, and you get rewarded for that in my system. Obviously, if you're able to dominate good competition, you're not dependent on kind of those fluky things that happen at the end of games to to get wins. You know, you're you're able to have that cushion at the end of games, so. Uh, so ultimately,
1: I mean that principle is pretty sound. And so so you you mentioned this, you know, right now this idea about differential competition strength. How do you use that in your in your tempo adjusted statistics? So in other words, do you, when you deal with say sort of you know, maybe three point percentage or any kind of adjusted measurement of of performance, how does the. Uh, as the ability or the strength of your opponent get factored in, if you're not really using wins. I mean, this traditional way of doing it is look at wins and discount wins against crappy teams and, and overweight your, your success against better teams. And that, that gets you your more or less your, your, your value, your ranking. You're suggesting to do things on a more possession basis. That, how does it, how do you directly then work in the strength of your opponent?
4: Right. So, you know, the only thing I adjust for opponent is the, uh, the offensive and defensive efficiency and the tempo um, just those basic things or everything else as far as, uh, you know, your three-point percentage or your rebounding rates or things like that are on my site are, you know, just completely your raw numbers, mainly in the interest of kind of transparency. And, you know, I don't want everything to be a black box for people out there. Like I want them to know that, hey, this data is real and you can subjectively adjust for opponent. And that actually is a, you know, for different stats is a tricky concept. Like we know that, say, three-point percentage defense is – You know, pretty random, and that defenses don't have a whole lot of effect on that, regardless of your quality. Like, there's Mm -hmm. some effect, but not a lot. But other things, like, you know, something like two point percentage defense, field goal defense at the rim, like that is very much affected by defense and uh, the quality of it. And that would have to be, uh, you know, adjusted in a, a much more robust way than three point percentage.
1: So you essentially measure the, the the level of your opponent by essentially those measures, those actual summary statistics, which then go into your model, as opposed to the strength of their schedule and the number of wins they have.
4: Yeah, exactly. Like so, the offense is adjusted by the quality of opponent's defenses played. So you know, it's uh, you basically just can scale uh, an opponent's defense to to average and and scale uh, that team's performance against that opponent. Um, based on that, and you do that for for all 30 games, and, and get an average, and then ultimately, kind of all kind of falls out naturally in terms of how good that offense is relative to that schedule.
1: So we're looking now at the at the last half of the tournament, although of course a number of games, it's not half, but uh, it's a, it's the Sweet 16. So what should we be looking at going forward, and in particular, how are these games really different from the regular season?
4: Well, you know, the main thing is uh, so the first thing is that. Teams, as we mentioned earlier, there's you know there's no tomorrow, so they're selling out. So the benches are getting shorter. We actually saw that, for instance, in Duke's game against UCF. You know, three of their starters played 40 minutes, which uh, I don't believe it happened at any point during the regular season. So that's one thing. Uh, you know, if you're trying to rate a team. It's not you're not rating the whole team now. You're, you're looking at how they would perform with just like their top six or seven guys. Um, so there's that. Um, there are the main. The other main thing in the tournament is that shooting percentages get worse. So. Um,
1: they yeah. do. Now, why is that? Why do you think that's true?
4: Um, that is a, a bit of a mystery. My uh, theory would be that teams are play kind of more physical, and officials don't call the game as if it's more physical. We don't see foul counts really change in the tournament, but uh, uh, I imagine that players, defenders, again, selling out for the moment, uh, are willing to kind of you know, break the law, so to speak, or at least come up close enough to the law that it could almost be broken uh, more often. And so that kind of gives a defensive advantage. They're able to, you know, be more handsy with ball handlers. They're able to kind of bump cutters more often. And uh, that uh, naturally causes more problems for the offense than uh, they otherwise might experience.
1: So is there any team that might benefit or be hurt specifically by this sort of new final rounds style of play? Of the 16 that are well, there?
3: Yeah, is there a particular team that's kind of, like, more physical just inherently and would be more able to kind of adapt to, the, like, this changing circumstance?
4: Yeah, I, so that's a, a great question. Like, to me, I feel like you probably should look at it from the opposite standpoint where it's like, hey, which which offenses has, have, you know, maybe been more resilient in physical play? And mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a easy answer for that. Like, who is... Who's dealt with more physical play? I think is a tricky question. Like I think the Big Ten kind of has a reputation maybe for physical play. I'm not sure if that's a vestige of you know days gone by and is is no longer true. Um, but you know certainly you look at like you know a team like Michigan State. I think historically has had a you know reputation of playing physical, being able to deal with contact. and uh, obviously Tom Izzo has had typically more success in the tournament than you might expect the average team to. So you know maybe that theory holds a little bit.
1: Interesting. <laughs> so that we're just we grasping for some particular advice for for, for our maybe betters going forward. And I'm not sure we're, 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 it's it's not that obvious to to, uh, to figure out if there is any over here at the end. Um, one of the things that, that I guess we're all trying to figure out going forward when we deal with the tournament is um, who who is. There's four teams. All four number ones are there. We had an over under on our in our segment a couple of weeks ago on how likely we thought it would be that one of the number ones would win the tournament. And I actually I actually picked that they wouldn't. I thought it would be more likely than not that a two or, or or worst ranked team would which would actually overall win. I'm thinking that that may not have been a good idea at this point. Um, what do you think about that? Either that, that that bet in particular, and which way would you go at this point?
4: Yeah, I think even pre tournament, maybe it was. You know, if you looked at the odds, maybe you guys did, but I would guess that there was it was more likely than not that a one would win it. Um, well, it was pretty
1: close. Know. It was pretty close. Okay. If you added up the the probabilities of the, of the the first four teams, it was it was right around fifty percent. And my r- rationale for thinking it is that you know it's March Madness. There's you know so much upsets happening, and there's obviously many many more teams on the other side of that. And I just went for the other side. It wasn't really too thoughtful. Other than that, I forget
3: where you went, Shane. I think I went for the number one, odd uh, number one seed winning. But, I mean, I, I do think, you know, it, it, it did. It was kind of about the, the probabilities or at least the betting odds at the start of the tournament did kind of add up to around 50% or, or so. So what do you um, think about it now? I
1: mean, yeah. now that we've
3: seen it down to the 16, all ones are there. Um, but so are all the twos. So, Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not even sure I, I would know how to kind of necessarily update that appraisal because as we sort of uh, talked about earlier – um, you know, that the fact that, you know, so many of the favorite teams have won, I mean, I, that obviously does mean that the number one seeds are still there, but they only have kind of the best of competition left we for them, it. too.
4: Yeah, it's a, so this year I think is pretty unusual in that respect. Most years I think you're pretty safe saying you know number one would not win it yeah. uh, based on the numbers. But this year was weird, as we discussed. You know, the top four teams. You could argue the top four teams were one seeds, which is extremely unusual. Um, I'm just looking at the odds I had before the the tournament, and I had it at about 55 or so, 56 percent, mm, and it's okay. actually it's gone down ever so slightly to 54, 55. But, ah,
1: okay. Uh,
4: yeah, I mean the group of teams that are ones obviously performed well and all made it, but of course the the path. To, uh, to getting there now for all those teams is marginally tougher than we might have expected you know before the tournament began so uh, those two things are kind of fighting each other yeah. but, uh still appears pretty good I, I have Virginia at a 22% chance I'm sure it's higher than the betting markets have and that's probably uh, the slight difference that we're seeing between my numbers and maybe the numbers that uh, you derived from the betting market
1: so it's interesting you, you are 22% well on Virginia but you are hedging on that because you think their slow play makes it hard, hard for them to forecast ultimately
4: yeah, ultimately. I mean, I, you know, obviously I have a lot of respect for the betting markets and understand what those mean and their predictive value. And so uh, I'm certainly not arrogant enough to blindly believe that, uh, you know, my humble system is, is going to beat them, especially when it's public knowledge and uh, apparently not uh, affecting the betting markets in a great way. Like, it, that does say something.
1: And it does. So one last question here before we, we uh, have to say goodbye. But one thing about watching a lot of, um, you know, NBA basketball, it's very star-driven at least appears to be, you know, the teams that dominate have one or maybe two you know, superstars. How much does that carry over to the NCAA? And obviously we have the superstar at Duke, uh, Zion yeah. Williamson. And how, what what do we expect to see going forward? Are they going I mean, are people picking Duke because of the star or is that just something to avoid? Uh,
4: you know, I think it's a case-by-case thing. And in, in Duke in particular, I mean, people have seen, you know, certainly you saw in the UCF game, like it comes down to the final play. And, you know, Zion Williamson is able to make something happen, you know, uh, with the aid of, of officials kind of, you know, being caught up in the moment as well and possibly withholding their, uh, their whistle in a certain case. Um, certainly for him, like, he's so important offensively, but also important to them defensively. Like, you have a very young, inexperienced team that typically would not be great defensively, but he's just so gifted athletically that he can make up for some of the mental mistakes that might happen on that end. Um, so it is a case by case thing. You know, I think there are some stars who uh, you know carry their team, but may have maybe a more predictable game—a game that holds up uh, less well in a physical, more physical environment. That uh, you know you might shy away from in those cases. But uh, the Zion hype is real and, and deserved and uh, and
1: deserved. So you expect him to go number yeah. one in the draft almost certainly.
4: I would think so. I mean, it's not a maybe complete certainty. John Morant will, uh, you know, has some some backers, but yeah, I would I would bet heavily that uh, Zion would be that guy.
1: And he is that good. Listen, Ken, I am really uh, delighted to have you know welcome you on our show, and it was a wonderful opportunity to spend a half hour with you, uh, taking that half hour out of your very busy schedule. Considering this is this is the high season, so thank you so much for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball.
4: All right, guys, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.
1: You're you're absolutely welcome. And we'll do some over-unders. We'll talk some baseball. We just had a great conversation yeah. with Ken Palm. Obviously, there's March Madness. Um, I do want to share some of my uh, conversations I had in the Yankee clubhouse with you, Shane, and get your reactions. Yeah, I want to hear about uh, what, what you talked about with CeCe. Yeah, so I definitely want to bring that up, but just before we do that, we just got a little, you know, a little bit of input from uh, from our assistant producer Zach Drapkin, who just gave us some data on Harden, which was just almost shocking. One of the things that we we like to do as, stat- in, as statisticians is sort of evaluate everybody in a sort of relative scale, usually used by standard deviation. And it's rare when you see someone in, in a particular sport stick out as much as James Harden does in basketball.
3: Yeah, no, I mean – and I think it is. it, it, it is – it's sort of fascinating to sort of see like that he's got this kind of like skill set that differentiates himself so much from – from you know, basically his contemporaries, and, and I mean, like it, it 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 makes for sort of these it, it makes for this kind of quand statistical quandary, right? Because you've got the Houston Rockets, and they're a pretty good team, but they're not like you know, sort of what they're, we not, mean, dominating, they're right? not dominating. They're not but dominating. They're not dominating as much as James he, Harden. Uh, seems yeah, to exactly. Be and like on kind of an individual statistics level, he is dominating. He's he's putting up these thirty six points a game. That's point totals that historically we haven't seen in quite some time. Um, and specifically, like, you know, the way he kind of shoots three points and stuff like that is something that we just, uh, you know, haven't seen. And I think it's fascinating that he has that kind of very unique skill set. And I also think it's fascinating that that unique skill set is not – you know, and, and is his – personal gaudy point totals is not necessarily translating into kind of dominance for his team. Right, so just,
1: just point them out and basically it's the, it's the uh, isolated possessions, these these three point shots that he takes without, uh, essentially unassisted yeah. he takes a step back and he, and he shoots and he just, he's almost quadruple the next um, totals of the next player it would be Westbrook it just sticks out, you know, insanely. I mean, it's just yeah. a kind of outlier you just don't see in professional sports. And yet, it is incredibly unusual. They're a good team, yet they're not the greatest or certainly not even the best team. So it gets you to wonder, well, maybe there's a drawback to, to this yeah. particular strategy. Um, so it's great to watch, and certainly we'll be paying attention a little bit more to NBA basketball as we head into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, this so. is going to
3: be the sort of time when we're going to see, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting, um, a test of this particular thing, right? Because in, in part you know the nice thing about the playoffs is you do eat some of the kind of worst teams out, and and so you're going to be able to sort of see kind of these in-game strategies. Like you know, Harden is going to be there in the playoffs with his team, and and they're going to have to def- somehow defend this kind of step-back three that seems at least during the regular season has been essentially indefensible, right? The way he's kind of putting up these totals, um, and so it'll be interesting to kind of see what what teams do with that. And I mean. There's choice. There's like, oh, you could adapt your strategy to try and prevent these things from happening, or you could just let them happen, you know, under the understanding right, that it that doesn't necessarily translate, translate into a team win anyway.
1: Right. I mean, so just uh Maddie Dash, just throw out a couple of statistics here. Will Chamberlain has five of the top six, you know, best scoring seasons of all time so take him out you have a number seven James Harden so yeah. it's just you know ridiculous but it, as you said it doesn't necessarily translate out to wins so let's get back to baseball in our last yeah. half hour we got the uh, Phillies opening day tomorrow opening day for almost all the major league teams except for the, the two that played in Japan who played last week um, and uh, we're excited here in Philly because of um, Bryce Harper but yeah. a, a, but a uh, lot of teams are looking to make some uh, well moves. I'm
3: excited I mean you know and I mean, I would, I'm curious to get to kind of your thoughts you know that the, I, I think there's a lot of kind of predictability in baseball like I think we know that the Red Sox are going to be good. The Yankees are going to be good. The Astros, Astros. are going to be good. You know, and, and but outside of those sort of particularly good teams, there's always going to be, you know, these one or two teams that kind of surprise us every season. I think, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers last season, they were you know, surprise, or the yeah. Colorado Rockies last season mm-hmm. were these kind of surprisingly good teams. And again, retrospectively, you can look back and be like, oh, well, maybe, you know, it's not that surprising. They did do some great moves, you know, like picking up Christian Yelich or whoever, um, who do you think sort of is going? To, you know, I'm, I'm asking well, I'm, you to kind of make a prediction of which that sort which surprising team you're. Well, which it's team not you going to be. You can the, it's us. not
1: going to be the Orioles. <laughs> and, no. Although no. if they win uh, 60 games, that might be surprising for us. One of the one of the teams that might fit that bill is it. Well, you probably will, will, will knock on it, is the Phillies. They're yeah. only predicted to win uh, 84 now, games.
3: On the walk into work today, I, I was kind of thinking about, it, and I think the Phillies are. You, who popped into my mind as well? I mean, I think I, I do think the Harper signing was a great one for them, and they have other signings for the the next few yeah. years, mm-hmm. and and you know they were already last year for at least the first kind of two thirds of the season were were kind of already that surprise team, right? And they obviously faded a little bit at the end, but um you know I'm uh, I'm kind of excited for the Phillies. I think everybody around the city is excited for the Phillies um, in general, but I I think they could be one of these teams that sort of comes you wins mid nineties games yeah yeah,
1: yeah. and because that would be quite a bit better than they're predicted I think most of the teams that we're predicting to be superstars are going to end up with fewer wins than than we're predicting and I, I was listening to a, you know a, you know a podcast and uh, on it, some someone who covers the Yankees was asked what do you think they're going to how many wins they're going to get that, this year and the, their argument their way of thinking was sort of uh, simple they said well last year the Yankees won hundred games they're better this year so I'm going to predict hundred and five and I'm listening to this and I'm going no no that's not how it, <laughs> works. Not how it works no I mean yeah. and that. <laughs> it
3: is kind of like a fallacy that I mean I I, I do it myself you know I, I tend to screw up these over unders a lot in the seasonal totals because you know you kind of again you you don't realize a how just how rare kind of a hundred win seasons are and you really shouldn't predict any team to have a hundred win season going in I mean there right. might be a team that does win hundred games but to actually predict that ahead of time is 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 you know probably a, a, a poor decision yeah, because so it, you should be regressing a yeah, lot of course.
1: more. It's hard to imagine predicting any team winning more than 96 yeah. wins in a season, a single t- a single team. So Matt just shared us a number. Um, we, I used the number 84 wins for the Phillies. That came from, I believe that came from, from 538's uh, ELO system. The uh, I'm not sure what number this is, but 89.5 is is uh, maybe the the Vegas line, or and that the over maybe for under some on the Vegas, on the line. Vegas yeah. line. So some obviously the public thinks that the Phillies are going to be better than 84. Yeah. Um, maybe the the wise move is to regress them down. So let's just uh, before we do our under over unders, which we want to save time. We got a nice long list here. Most of them are baseball oriented, which is <laughs> which is always a challenge. You know, we were I was remarking that um, before our, before our show started today, uh, we got a little bit of summary of how we did across. Uh, the last year in our over unders and yeah. the sport that I did the worst in was baseball. Yeah, and which is for me a, sort of an odd thing because if I at least compare to the other sports, it's the only sport I know you know a decent amount right. relative to uh, you know. But
3: maybe that's the thing is I mean I think maybe you know there's there's kind of you know. Uh, I think you're more probably willing to believe your own kind my of own narratives. Narrative. That's you know? right. You know, I tell um, stories
1: to myself. And like everybody right. else, we tell stories. And in the other sports, I'm just much more comfortable falling back on my statistics expertise yeah. and making decisions based on the data rather than the stories that we tell. Yeah. So we'll have a chance to get back to the over-under. Well, was-
3: and I mean, again, because you've been doing such a good job hosting this morning, I'm going to yeah. give you, I'm going to throw you like, uh, your yeah, a bone here. <laughs> And I'm going to ask you, sort of like, you know, kind of looking at the season, tell me about... I mean, obviously I want to hear about what you talked about with CC. but tell me about kind of where you see this Yankee-Red Sox thing happening this year. Well,
1: I do th- see them as essentially um, extremely well-matched rivals, yeah. which does it's going to dent their, their win total. They play 19 games against each other, so n- n- I don't believe either team was going to walk away with the lion's share. They're both ex- exceptionally good teams. The Yankees are better than they were last year, yeah. and arguably the, the Red Sox can only go down. I mean, they won 108. That's, that's probably yeah. the best Red Sox team that has ever, I've walked. ever walked. Um, and uh, so I, I think they're fairly well matched. I mean, you know, you, can you expect you know terrific seasons out of uh, out of all their pitching staff like they did last year? I don't think you're going to see that. Kimbrel, what's going on with him? You yeah, know I, mean? I, don't think, I don't think he's you no, I, I even think that, I, I, it, right?
3: Focusing on those two teams specifically, I think the intriguing thing is going to be. I mean, the one area that like. Of weakness across either of them is just it's the Red Sox bullpen. They they just don't have right. one and, at least like in terms of big names. And sort of I think it'll be an interesting test. I mean, clearly they're kind of making that decision. I think mostly based on financial um considerations, but I think they also think that they can kind of get through with kind of match mix and matching. Mm-hmm. And Alex Cora certainly in his first season as manager had a lot of success with kind of the decision in game decision making he employed. So maybe with these kind of like less kind of prominent names they can still kind of cobble together a good end game i just it doesn't fill me with confidence well, that we don't have yeah. you know essentially anybody in our bullpen uh, to speak of well which of course is exactly the opposite the yankees who yeah have yeah ridiculously we'll have invested a lot <laughs> in that in that particular <laughs> a area
1: bullpen. and 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 but in but in the counterpoint of course their, their starting rotation uh, severino injured right now mm-hmm. he's sort of their lead starter he had a very weak second half we're not really sure why some say that he was tipping his pitches we of course we have Tanaka, Tanaka's yeah. getting up there. James Paxton, uh, James was a Paxton really is a really nice pick The new hire and he's in some some sense. Uh, there's I have just such a, a bad memories of great pitchers coming to the Yankees and just being disastrous. And so, you know, the Yankees picked up Sonny Gray, they were he was terrible. I mean, reaching yeah. back into history, there's certain the Yankees sort of seem to have a way with bringing in uh, but pitchers. I'll tell you
3: one guy who came and ha- has had nothing but success in that organization for like Honestly, in my mind, he's been pitching there for years, is CeCe Sabathia.
1: Sabathia. So let me just tell you, I was down in Florida... And uh, I had media access, so I went down mm-hmm. to the clubhouse, and I had a chance to talk uh, in a nice short conversation with CeCe Sabathia. First of all, in person, he's even bigger than he is on television. Well, the guy's a very big dude. So I decided I would ask a you know an old stalwart, a guy who's uh, nearly 40, has been pitching for many, many years, what he thought about sort of the new trend in managing the managing the pitching staff in particular. I asked him about the opener. Yeah. So I said, what do you think about the opener? opener and what do you think he said? Any guesses? Yeah no over under on this just well, no i mean <laughs> I, I mean
3: i i i kind of have to go with sort of like i would guess that he's not all that rese- uh, he doesn 't uh, think it's y- such a great idea, y- you guessed absolutely correctly, hate it, I think is what yeah. he said hate it yeah. um,
1: and his response was, um, well, I actually asked him, you know why are you against it and he said, well i'm there to get you know the guys out, and I'm not there to to, to come in late, but one of the things i would try- I tried to explain was why it is a good idea and why a pitcher like Sabathia should really like it and as yeah. opposed to run from it, and I said, why do you want to start?" You don't want to start. You can only pitch seven, six, seven innings anyway. Right. Of course, he responded by saying, "In the, my youth, I would pitch. My goal was to pitch the entirety of the game." Yeah, and and I said, "I think we we'll want to, but you're certainly not in your youth now, yeah. so you're not going to be pitching probably more than five innings." Isn't it better for you to start? You have to pace yourself. Let someone who's only going to pitch one inning, who has the ability to throw as hard as they can because they're pitching only one inning, start their game so they can face the, uh, the your opponent's top of the lineup. And of course, he said, "Well, I'm there to get everybody out." Yeah. Um, and but I think that's old school thinking, and I think that's. The, the... Well,
3: but I, I think it's not. It's not just old school thinking. I think it is sort of like a, I, there's probably psychology, and I think probably Cade could actually speak to the psychology better than than I could. But I think there is a psychology in athletes. I think part of what leads you to become like this amazing kind of professional athlete is like an unbounded confidence in yourself. Like I think that's part of the kind of. Elite exactly we see that set, right and so you know basically this uh, these decisions like the opener or taking a person out of the game early and the, all these things are basically kind of an acknowledgement from a, 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 another person that you are not you you know they someone they, else they, they, they feel like the job, somebody right. else can do this better than you can and so i think it just probably rankles these elite athletes that there is is that kind of consideration that they they you know somebody's saying well actually I think this you know like flamethrower bullpen guy is the best is, to is, start is, off can, you know those those that top of the lineups you know you're not I don't think you're going to do as well against them as this this other guy so
1: I tried to lure him or seduce him into yeah. agreeing that the opener is a good idea by telling him that you don't have to pitch five innings and still get the win yeah because you can start in the second pitch say three or four innings and be the the most you know yeah, dominant the record, rec- record or record and, and be and become yeah. and get the win, and he said, "He said without batting." And I turns to me and says, "I thought you guys hate wins, yeah." <laughs> As if no. somehow I'm personally responsible, um, yeah. which is funny because he's got two forty eight, and I think his Hall of Fame case, which I think is excellent, um, strong, will certainly be improved by another 10, but 15 I mean, wins. Uh, no,
3: that's right. And uh, but I think you know, regardless of whether he gets those ten or fifteen, and I, I would you know personally rather he didn't get fifteen wins <laughs> right, right, uh, right. this season. But uh, um, I think you know he is going to be one of these cases. Going forward, where we're going to have to redefine in in light of how pitching has changed and pitching usage has changed over the last couple of decades, we're going to have to when we start thinking about the Hall of Fame redefine what our historical standards are for pitchers. Right? You know, I mean, it used to be, you know, it, it was you know two hundred fifty wins, three hundred wins, two hundred fifty right. wins, like three hundred wins was right. kind of you know the 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 break the the watershed point. And we're just, are we ever going to see a three hundred win pitcher again? Probably not.
1: Probably not, I right.
3: would say. And, and and unless, um, uh,
1: unless of course, they, there is a widespread use of the opener, and then you will find pitchers getting wins yeah. in situations where they didn't pitch five innings. I mean, I think I
3: think more likely we will kind of, and I, and again, us analytics guys probably would cheer this, and in, in, in most ways we're probably going to evolve towards something where like the concept of a win is, is less important, right? right. You, you, you know, that pitchers are kind of measured more kind of in, in, in their rates per inning and stuff right. like that and, and, and kind of like the cumulative kind of number of people they get out and less about this kind of win thing, which always was kind of arbitrary. It was arbitrary
1: because it depended on run support. On the yeah. other hand, and I actually defended wins a little bit, as a single metric that combines de- you know, depth of your of your outing, how many innings you pitched and how well you did, it's not a bad number. I mean, ERA only measures your rate, right? And uh, and and it doesn't it doesn't have to do with your, your run support. So wins is not the terrible number. That no, but talk I mean,
3: I've I've even like I've sort of seen like things evolve away from like like things like quality start is obviously better than win already because it right. takes out run support.
1: But it doesn't d- differentiate between a zero and a three. Runs given up, so that's they're both quality starts.
3: Yeah, so, no, that, that's right. I just, I, I think we'll probably start moving more towards. I mean, I, I agree that you don't want to just do a rate thing because that doesn't kind of emphasize the number of innings you pitch. But there will be some kind of cumulative measure of a pitcher's performance in a game that's less linked, hopefully, to to their run support as well as, like, kind of the order of the innings in which they pitch.
1: So, I'd like to welcome back into our studio Cade Massey, which is terrific. I hope you, you know, had a... Got back
3: just in time for the (laughs) over-unders.
1: And, and in fact, I'm going to now bring us in with our over-unders.
0: It's Warden Moneyballs Over-Under.
1: Okay, so, Shane and Cade... We do have quite a few MLB over-unders. Some of them are repeats of, where, of what we had earlier. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll instead of doing those, I'm going to jump to one further down our list, which is how many teams do you think will win 100 wins or more? Over-under is 1.5. So just last year we had three teams, Houston, New York, and Boston. Well, the Yankees only had 100, but
0: still three. So will we see more than one? Cade. so I'm I'm just here to bolster y'all's competitive scores in this thing. Oh, Clearly, appreciate open uh, I appreciate that. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna you know, I'm, I'm gonna try to approach this logically. So I'm gonna say, look, on the one hand, the inclination would be to say over because we had a lot last year. that's salient, it's vivid, easy to go that way. Is there any reason to expect that there's a trend towards more of these? I think there might be. I think this notion of tanking has um, caught traction. It's not just the random Astros here or there that are doing it. More teams are doing it, so we get more kind of a a more bimodal distribution of wins. So on that basis, I'm going to go over.
3: No, I mean, you've almost half convinced me because there are going to be some teams. We were talking before you came back about, like, it's going to be – it's hard to predict necessarily who – all the good teams are going to be, but as you kind of point out, it's easy to predict a few bad teams like Baltimore and stuff like that. And you know, the nice thing for the Red Sox and Yankees is they get to play Baltimore nineteen times, a times, year, and a Toronto year.
1: doesn't look particularly yeah. good either.
3: So, so I've almost half convinced myself that they could do it again, but I I, I just have to go with with history. with history and 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 just the idea that a hundred win teams still to me seem very rare. And I do not think we're going to get two. two or more of them this year, so I'm going to take the under. The under. Well, I'm actually
1: uh, <laughs> this is a great under over under, Maddie. That's fantastic, right on the money. Um, I think we'll see one. Um, boy, on the spot, I'm actually going to go for two. No, uh, nice. I, I think take we have a, some, a bunch. We have a bunch of tanking teams, yeah. and we're going to see some domination. All right, the next one is actually uh, one of my favorite topics, and like to pick on is war, which is higher this year. Mike Trout's war and he's been 10.2, 10.5, 9.4, one year of 6.6 when he was injured or Three times Bryce Harper's war. <laughs> now last year Bryce Harper was one point <laughs> three. Is this, is like, can, this is the this only is way like you can
3: a a way of, do a war thing with Bryce. <laughs> any any kind of over under with Mike Trout make it fair and balanced. Is,
0: is, is like. that's is that's trow- uh, tr- uh, trolling our uh, our Phillies fan right, base? Um, I, I
1: will say the problem with this, of course, is that is it's not on our list. So I'm going to add this in. Uh, uh, so the, f- the baseball reference was one point three for Mike for Bryce Harper, but he was three point seven. For Fangraphs, yeah or maybe i got that backwards but bottom line was there's a huge divergence depending on uh, which one you're, what you're looking at so baseball reference was 1.3 fan was 3.7 so well, i guess we're we'll, dealing with baseball we'll have to, reference we'll, numbers we'll, we'll, we, have to, we have to pick one so we're we're going to be sticking with the baseball reference numbers you can't do you can't select the better one so given the baseball reference numbers which basically don't like bryce harper which would you take
3: well, I still i'm gonna take i'm gonna take three times Bryce Harper. I mean, a I think it's gonna be a little bit easier for him to field in in, in Citizens Bank Park, which is a smaller park. It's also gonna be a lot easier for him to hit home runs in Citizens Bank Park. Um, so the fact that he's moving into kind of a, a stadium that is f- even friendlier to him than last year, um, and also the fact that you know he only has to get a third of Trout's home uh, like more swear, for this, yeah. uh, I'm gonna take Bryce Harper.
1: Kate? or do you want me to jump in? You to take your
0: we can keep on going clockwise.
1: like this. All right. So on. I'll jump in. I'm going to agree with with Shane. I will say I will just comment, though, that war does take into account park effects. So he's going to be a detriment to uh, Bryce Harper to having moved from the Nationals to the Phillies, which is considered a more of a homer park. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one thing that that Mike Trout has always benefited from is that the Angels are considered to be a a poor hitting park, although I don't think the numbers are. You know, yeah, really and I mean, that.
3: I guess I was kind of talking about. I mean, what really drags down Bryce Harper's at least baseball reference war is is, is like that he's considered to be a is, very poor yeah. fielder, and it, it doesn't it doesn't take into account the fact that he just has less terrain to field, right? And I, I also think Elf, that
1: yeah. that uh, he played a lot of his, of his. Uh, Career so far, but last year in particular, out in center field, where he's just horrifying. Yeah, and there there is a bone, a, a benefit to being out in center field. You get a little bump in war to play center field, but in his case, it didn't compensate for doing it badly. Yeah, so um, I'm going. Uh, I'm taking Bryce Harper.
0: I'm going to go all soft and psychological and say, yeah, the move to a more comfortable position in the field and a new place and settling the long term contract. All those things are going to play to his benefit. And he's going to find a bit of a groove here. Yeah, so I'm going to go. I'm going to go Harper as well.
1: Okay, so uh, I, want I to don't say- want to pull
0: against the local uh, guy. So, yeah, on, first yeah. <laughs> right. of course.
1: So um, I do want to move towards the NCAA basketball. These these can settle relatively soon. We'll have an opportunity to know whether we're doing so. That's we got two here. So um, number one seeds to make the final four, and Matt gives us two point five. Oh my god, as the over under. No,
0: you got to go first, Todd. No, it's your turn. It is my turn. Is turn. I'm, I'm
1: happy to go first, but it's your turn. Um, ah, it's funny because I, I remarked earlier that I bet in favor the last time on uh, on a tour or lower-ranked team winning it all. So I'm going to go the other way this time to hedge like my it. two. Now, I can still win them both. I'm actually going to predict over on this. Three- Going to be I'm a three strong. More.
0: I'm a strong under. We I don't. We don't often see three or four one seeds. We always think we're gonna, and we just don't see it. Now I realize that you know it's been a chalky tournament, all that stuff, but I'm, I think base rate is pretty strongly under here.
3: Yeah, I think I'm going to go under. I mean, I do. Yeah, I mean, all we've got four of them in contention, but we also. The fact that's it been so chalky means that their competition is even a little bit more fierce this year than it is Good. historically, right? Good you know, insight. so we've that's got right. we've got all the twos around and all the threes around as well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the under.
0: Audie wants to change his answer and he can't.
3: Yeah, you're damn right. You're <laughs> so right. You didn't even. By the way, I'm gonna point out that Kate did that without even
1: looking at me. He just knew by the the whole conversation that <laughs> the strength that I just of my argument that, that this is I a you. You. Yeah, terrible, yeah, terrible, right. terrible pick that uh, I made. All right, here we go. Here's our last. You could be last, last NCA. We got. We got. We got to get this done quickly. How many titles for Duke, Gonzaga, or Virginia? Over under half.
3: <laughs> so does Duke, Gonzaga, or Virginia win? Yeah, okay. basically um, that. Make, make it quick. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going to take. I'm going to take the over. I think Duke wins. Duke yeah. or Virginia? Maybe i, I start. I'm, I'm going
1: to go over as well. All right. I'm going. I'm going to pile in with you guys. I'm going over. Okay. So there we have it. We did a nice round. We have many more baseballs we could get to. Let's enjoy the beginning of baseball season tomorrow. so excited. For those of you who are going to pay attention, and then next week we'll have much to talk about. It's been a great uh, half hour, or two hours, our final segment. Thanks to Maddie Dats, our producer, Daniel Bruno, in the sound engineer for all the work she does there and on producing our podcast. It's been a great two hours, Wharton Moneyball. Join us next week, and enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics.